Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, ecological and political crises that we face today and they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. I have a double header for you guys this week. I spoke with Tom Prue and Susan Clark about deliberative democracies, i.e. how to create democratic processes that engage the community, empower citizens, and result in depolarizing debate which, as we all know, is more critical than ever. Tom was a researcher at World Watch Institute, and during his time there, how to create better political proceeds uh, caught his eye in his research. And after he left, he came across a book that Susan wrote called Slow Democracy. They've since connected and are working on a series of blog posts for resilience.org. For those of you who don't know resilience.org, it is a phenomenal resource, collating the research of some of the best thinkers around the world, many of whom have been guests on this podcast. <laughs> Tom and Susan joined me to explain what a deliberative democratic process looks like, how it differs to this fast democracy that we live in today, how it engages communities, the positive results we've seen around the world, and how it empowers people to take responsibility for local governance, which then has a trickling upward effect. Obviously, we debate the efficiency of such a process given the urgency of the climate crisis. But frankly, I mean, Tom makes a great point of... <laughs> How's fast democracy working out for us? Are we seeing results? What's going on? What actually was achieved at COP, for example? As we all know, not much. I found this interview to be so inspiring because it engages with the truth that people are capable, more than capable, of caring for one another, of being responsible for one another, and seeing eye to eye if the facts are not presented to them in an adversarial environment. Rather than creating an either or, we can have debates that are inclusive, that begin with both and. It's a concept Susan explains and comes back to again and again in this episode. And I found it to be so enlightening when thinking about the uh, two-party system that we're all forced to participate in every four or five years, certainly in the West. I hope you all enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love it, support the podcast at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page where everyone now has access to the interview transcripts. Becoming a paid subscriber or patron also supports my independent investigations into climate corruption around the world. I expose dangerous industry greenwashing and the world's worst climate fraudsters. If that's important to you, join the Planet Critical community who help make that happen. And to those of you who are already supporting this podcast and my work, thank you so much. Thank you both for, for making the time and for joining me on Planet Critical. If you could both uh, introduce yourselves to the audience so we have a little bit about your background individually. Tom, would you like to begin? Uh, sure. Um, I'm retired. I used to work at World Watch Institute, which was an environmental think tank uh, that ran from 1974 to 2017. And I wasn't there that long, but uh, during my work there, about 15 years of my work there, among the things I was interested in was governance. And like a lot of people, uh, I was inspired by a famous book by Benjamin Barber called Strong Democracy. And I started reading up on that. And at various times 
in my work at World Watch, I was able to work in some of that content and themes into the things I was doing. And then when I retired, I started working on a book about it. And in reading background material, I came across a book called Slow Democracy by Susan Clark and Woden Teachout. And I reached out to Susan because I realized that pretty much everything I thought I was going to say, she and Woden had already said. <laughs> uh, and I, I asked her if she was interested in doing an update or a, a different version of it. And eventually we sort of decided, or maybe I did, I don't remember, Susan, I'm not going to implicate you in this. I thought a, a series of blog posts might reach a different audience, uh, one that I had in mind in particular at resilience.org. Um, I don't know if, Rachel, you're familiar with that website. The vast majority of my guests uh, write for that website. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, then you know the story there. It's Post Carbon Institute, and it's a, a lot of people interested in, who believe that there's a great deal of probably social and political and ecological turmoil coming up in the next 10 to 20 to 30 years, uh, and they're interested in trying to reduce the harm done by that or cope with it or mitigate it or adapt to it. And I started thinking that maybe since I believe that deliberative democracy is a system of governance that is well suited to the likely turmoil ahead, that, that we ought to do a series of blog posts on that. So I'm curating the series. Susan has contributed uh, three key posts to that series. And I'm going to hit her up for one or two more uh, in, in the next several months, I know. And so that's where it sits right now. Right. Okay. Excellent. Before we jump in to define what a deliberate democracy is, then, Susan, could you also give uh, your background? Sure. Yeah. It's Susan Clark. I live in uh, Vermont, in the Northeastern US, um, and I'm a facilitator um, and an educator and a writer. And um, as Tom mentioned, I um, wrote a book called Slow Democracy, uh, which is, um, you know, about that idea of, of uh, it kind of, it, it takes inspiration from the slow food movement, which I'm sure you're, a lot of your listeners are familiar with the idea of, uh, you know, understanding where our food comes from and recognizing our connection to agriculture creates uh, a better uh, system. And, you know, the idea of slow democracy is similarly can we really understand where our decisions come from? Can we have ownership of those and, and play a role in democracy? So um done a, an awful lot of facilitating uh, and then gone ahead and done a bunch of research for the book that really convinced me that we need to reconnect with our with our decision making and particularly with our with our place, our, our geographic place. Um, and we will make better informed and, and more sustainable uh, decisions. Right. Okay. So would we then define the democratic systems that we currently exist in as, as fast democracies in comparison? Yeah, yeah, like fast food, right? I mean, it's they're quick, they're, you know, in and out, you know, and, uh, and and what you wind up with is something that's not very nourishing, not very sustainable, um, and really not connected, uh, oftentimes to the to the to the meaning that 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 should be, uh, you know, in in uh, you know, in we the people. Right. Okay. Uh, I find that a very interesting thing to say, a meaning in we the people. This is this is a question that's come up quite a bit on this podcast. One of my favorite discussions was with David Orr on this, on like, yes. what is citizenship? Yeah. And how was, do we... That was a great one. Oh, did you listen to yes. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, oh, fantastic. I loved it. 
I mean, how do we how do we enable people uh, to participate more actively in democracy? How do we redefine citizenship so that it, it becomes active? Um, so let's let's talk about that. I mean, what are some of the um, grounding principles of a deliberate democracy uh, as opposed to a fast one? Sure. Well, I have an escalator speech about that. Excellent. Which is a bit longer than an elevator speech. <laughs> There's a stairwell speech too that's even longer, but maybe we'll get to that. Susan and I, I think we agree on this because we've we hashed out what we mean by deliberative democracy in the course of uh, some negotiations about one of the blog posts. But what we mean is a vision of governance that. First is mainly locally focused. I, I point out, though, that it can be and is being scaled to work at different levels of governance as well. Um, second, it, it invites citizens into structured and moderated gatherings in person or online, and it supports ongoing, respectful, and public dialogue, exchange, and mutual education. It engages ordinary people and strives to be broadly inclusive of all community members. It's based on balanced information and transparent processes. And it, it tries to address wicked issues. I, you know what we mean by wicked in this context, I guess, right? Can, can you explain it for the listeners? Well, wicked problems that uh, there are a lot, they're complicated. There are lots of stakeholders, lots of points of view, People frame the issue differently, but the solutions depend on how you frame it. Uh, they have unforeseen consequences. They're not stable problems. Uh, they, they evolve over time, so they're really hard to get a grip on. Um, and super wicked problem is one like climate change when it's all those things, but time is running out and the proposed responses uh, don't take much account of the future that's built into our economic system. So it's a real mess. <laughs> but this kind of governance, uh, which involves multiple stakeholders and allows people to confront and question and probe the trade-offs involved in any particular solution to a problem is really best suited to dealing with these kinds of problems. My First, um, I mean, I have a couple of questions on some of the specific things that you said there, but I mean, my first sort of gut reaction, given, given the time frame that we're on to confront the climate crisis is, I mean, how pragmatic is this? Like, I, it sounds fantastic in theory, but how do you actually um, start to implement this? either at scale or locally, because I mean, the other problem is like, you know, we do local governance is such a great idea. And I do genuinely believe that it is sort of any necessary future of a stable planet. And yet, because we have until 2030 to kind of combat, you know, planetary boundaries and overshoot and all this sort of stuff, we need international treaties. So how do we balance that need for international consensus and then um, localized governance in order to engage an apathetic population? Absolutely. And I, and I, I would definitely go with both and Rachel, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, mm. oh, let's only focus on this. Mm. But at the same time, um, we are dealing with a deeply flawed species, humans. Um, and, uh, and one of the things we know about them is that what, one of the things we know about us, especially since brain scan imagery has taught us so much about how our brains work, is that we're, when we're confronted 
with information that um, uh, is in contrast with our existing worldview. Um, our our prefrontal cortexes don't even fire, and we go ah, really. It's like like we, we it's it's a terrible fact that we've learned about humans. The more we learn about our brains, what happens is that in these in these wicked problem situations, we go straight to emotion. It's like a reptilian you know response. So what can we what can we do to engage? You were saying apathetic, but I, I feel like all, um, there, there's some other word that has to do with pathos. You know, it's not mm. apathetic. Like we're too we're too emotionally invested and not able to to engage with our with our prefrontal cortex. And and so, what are some systems that we can use to um, depolarize some of these conversations? And that's where, ironically, I mean, when we named our our book "Slow Democracy," you know, my husband was like, "Oh, that's a great name," and maybe you know, you can get the the domain name and, and see if you can get painful dentistry at the same time because it, it, <laughs> it sounds so great for democracy you know uh, but but the reality is that it's um, um slow democracy is often faster it's often faster because we skip the polarization we skip the um um yeah but yeah but yeah but and um we we create a setting where we can be our best selves um, and uh, we are going to um, elect better leaders into those national uh, and international um, domains when we ourselves have experienced um, that deliberative process. You know, I've learned so much from the environmental education movement in this. And, you know, David Sobel, the wonderful environmental educator professor, uh, told us uh, years ago, you know, it, 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 and it's been quoted many times. I can't remember the exact wording, but it's basically um, no uh, tragedies before sixth grade, I think it is. Basically, humans need to love a thing before we want to save. We have to engage. We have a lot of people who don't love democracy because they don't see it working. But when oh, yeah. you can be involved in a local process and you can see that a democratic process really can work, you can sit down with a person you disagree with and you can find a way forward. Maybe not on everything, but find some common places where you can move forward. Even when, even if it's, I want the bike path because I believe that a bike path is going to create less, you know, it will have fewer fossil fuels and, uh, and, and you want the bike path because you think it'll be good for economic development in your downtown. We might have very different reasons for wanting that bike path. But we get the bike, and and that's where we can we can move forward with people that we might fundamentally disagree with on on other issues. That that's what's exciting about a, 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 a slow democratic process. If I, if I may jump in here though, there seems to be um, a slight uh, tension in in what you're saying because you're saying we can move past depolarization, and yet you're also saying when people um, are confronted with information that. Um, they fundamentally disagree with on a sort of ideological level, then their prefrontal cortex, i.e. the rational decision-making part of their brain doesn't kick in. So, I mean, how can those things then be true at the same time? How can we engage in slow democracies and move past polarization if we do live in such a polarized world that it does seem actually fundamentally and apparently neurologically impossible to sit people down uh, across from one another at a table and engage with one another in order to achieve a consensus rather than to, I don't know, um, 
debate a matter just to fulfill their own worldview. Because I think that's part of the problem with politics sure. right yes. now. It's that, yes. that people have such little sort of autonomy over the direction of their own lives that their ideology is all they have left. Right. And that's why right. they cling to it. Yes. Yeah. And I'm not, I, I would not suggest a process where people let go of their identities. Um, well, I, I think it's all about the framing, Rachel. It's all about, mm -hmm. if, if you sit people down and say, bike path or no bike path, then you've, you've set up a polarized situation. But if, mm. you, if you invite people into a discussion where we say, how can we have a vibrant local economy and also um, support our natural resources? If you frame the question in a way that brings in both sides, and, and facilitated in a way where we really are expressing that, that your, your, your idea that there should be a, um, a vibrant downtown isn't one that I necessarily agree with. It's not my top priority, but, I, but it's not hateful. <laughs> um, and likewise, um, you know, uh, most people on this earth agree that, e you know, e ecological balance is important. So how can we take the best of both of those views and not put them in a the debate? In the debate? It's, it's inclusion, it's deliberation, and it's, and it's empowerment in those decisions that will bring people together. Right. Understood. I, I, I do like that um, framing of, of rather than doing either or, you just make it and this and that as well. Okay. Um, and certainly it seems, I mean, again, great in theory, but I mean, just looking at, you know, COP26 and the um, inability to A, confront the reality of our situation and then B, reach consensus on very, very basic things of which we have data. Like we know there are certain things that we need to do. The, the pragmatist in me says, well, if those who are trained in like diplomacy and negotiation can't do it um, at a level at which we desperately need to in order to save our democracies as they currently stand, flawed as they are, how can we expect people on the ground who live very precariously, and I use the term apathy, earlier and perhaps that wasn't fair of me but like precarious people living precarious lives that maybe don't have the time to think about all this sort of thing how can we expect them to do what our leaders are incapable of i have something but it's not a silver bullet um mm. i don't think there are any silver bullets that it may be the climate change and the other threads of the converging poly crisis we're facing are showing both the limits of Homo sapiens are as a as a species on the planet, but I'd like to believe that one of the reasons the COP twenty six, the COP meetings have been, you know, underwhelming in terms of results is that there's a disconnect between the people, the earnest people who see the need for action and who uh, attend those meetings and negotiate on behalf of their governments governments and the people who live in those countries. There's just sort of a severance of political connection between those, those levels. So nations negotiating around uh, at the COP meetings made pledges, but without necessarily having anything like a, a buy-in for those pledges back home. And one of the things that a deliberative democratic culture would do would be to enable and encourage and support ordinary people in, I hate to use the word interrogate, but because it sounds so, you know, where were you on the night of the 25th? But <laughs> I like that. It says, well, you think climate change is not a big deal. Well, I think it is. I live in Tornado Alley and the incidence mm -hmm. of tornadoes is going up every year. And my town got wiped out last year. 
Yeah, I think it is a big deal. You bring people together in certain settings that encourage them to hear each other and deal, confront the, the facts as they can be known and the consequences and the trade-offs involved. And if they are able to reach some kind of consensus, then you create that political buy-in and you create the support for policy at the level at which maybe the COP meetings are being negotiated. And again, um, it's not fast, but it's faster than trying to get, trying to negotiate agreements without any political buy-in because people yeah. will just de-elect the folks who support that kind of thing as representatives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with what Tom, uh, said, and I would add, um, um, he uses the conditional, you know, it, here's what a deliberative democracy process would do. And I use the present tense. Here is what a deliberative a democracy process does do, because I've seen it happen uh, again and again. It's, it's super inspiring, Rachel, and just, just step away from those stupid international com conversations that are, that are, uh, disinspiring and take some time to look at, uh, just for your heart, for your soul, uh, I, I would encourage all of all our listeners to look at the successes that, that are happening um, at the local level and at the regional level. I actually think that uh, at those international and national levels, um, uh, they are working under the worst of circumstances um, because yeah. you've got um, what, what Amanda Ripley calls conflict entrepreneurs, people who literally make it their work to polarize and uh, you know, to agitate the base, to agitate their country's priorities um, in a way that is, it's about, uh, you know, trying to convince others or it's about winning rather than being about trying to create new solutions. Mm. Um, and when, but when you bring people together and say, we need a new solution and, and there isn't this sort of loaded conflict entrepreneurship on, on either side, you know, we see again and again that, that humans can can figure this out but they you know they often aren't 100 percent perfect solutions but they are they um create um forward movement and they create um uh, commitment to the process so that we can continue to move forward the, the thing that i really like about the the image is the idea as well that if people felt that they were more engaged they would then also be far more likely to engage in calling out bad behavior like, I think we've gotten to the stage now where people just expect politics and politicians to be so performative and so self-serving that, like, certainly in the UK, I mean, you know, we're kind of going through Partygate still. Um, you know, Long Joe, he just paid his fine. Um, and it's like, it's, it's just mad that he's not resigned. Ten years ago, he would have had to resign and he's still not resigned. And people are just like, yeah, whatever. Like, that, that's what we would expect from that guy. Whereas I feel like if people felt that um, they were more involved in their own democracies and that it would kind of turn on uh, everybody's, and I think everybody has it, that kind of like journalism gene. Mm -hmm. Like, well, no, you work for me, actually. So I am going to call you out because I do have a voice mm -hmm. and I have the power to affect change. And I think that is what really, really is so exciting. Can you give some examples? You said mentioned locally and regionally. Can you give some examples of deliberate democracies that are um, functioning around the world? There's one in Susan's town. Ooh, tell us about that. 
the New England town meeting, I think, is is a great example that, that, that Tom mentions. Um, and that's a, a, a separate book that I wrote called All This in Favor, a little book about uh, Vermont town meetings. But the, these are um, not not that sort of um, town hall meeting model that, that we see where people, you know, yell at each other. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, an actual part of, of local governance in New England where each town has a an executive body that's the you know the select board and then basically the legislative branch is everyone in the town um and on town meeting day um everyone in the town all the voters come and make binding decisions on um, key issues of finance and governance so this is where we decide our budget this is where um uh you know we decide on on uh you know governance tools so the floor uh debate uh the floor discussion uh includes amendment and 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 here's Rachel, where I think that it it it, it co- goes to your um your hope or your assertion that human beings you know actually do have that you know kind of journalist gene. What's that? Accountability gene. Accountability, yes. When yeah. you actually are are in charge of something, even if it's as small as your own town government, when what you stand up, you know that you can um, impact your neighbor's vote. What we see is that we tend to be more civil. We tend to be um, more responsible in our deliberations. Not so extreme. It's very different from online. Uh, it's very different from the flaming and whatnot that happens. These places in New England that have town meetings um, do rank really high uh, on national measurements of, of social capital. That that level idea of trust and um, mutual assistance and tolerance. So that, that, I mean, I think town meetings are a good example. Um, another example that I would give, there's a, a city called Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire, along the main New Hampshire border that uh, uses a, a tool called, it's, it's from a group called Everyday Democracy, and it's a tool called Study Circles. And it, it began doing that um, several decades ago, actually, around a very controversial school issue. There's a, there's a, um, some community organizing that happens at the beginning where you make sure that you get a broad, um, diverse cross-section of the population involved. Everyone's invited. Then you break up into small groups and you have, um, I think it's a series of five or six meetings where you really dive into the information because good, basic information is really critical to a good deliberation. Um, you listen and hear each other. Uh, the issues are framed, uh, as we talked about, not as, you know, A versus B, but let's co-create C. Let's figure out this question. In their first case, it was about, there were some schools that were uh, had that were under-enrolled and one school that was over-enrolled and, and they needed to figure out. It's really hard to move kids around in a city. It's super, mm-hmm. super uh, controversial, um, very emotional. But they um, were able to visit the schools, get good information and ultimately make a recommendation to the school board. It was a big bond issue that passed because there were hundreds of people involved in the research and in identifying the solution. Um, so they've gone on to create what's called Portsmouth Listens, which is a standing group in their little city that isn't devoted to any particular, you know, they're not pro-economy this or anti-environmental that. What they are is pro-democracy. and. Mm. The, the entire focus of the group is let's have good facilitated processes where we can really make sure that we engage folks. And they've gone on to deal with issues of race. They've gone on to deal with issues of sustainability, environmental sustainability, and created um, some some lasting policies through those. They've done two town plan uh, updates, you know, involving thousands of people. 
they're, they're not alone by any means, although they're a great example uh, of communities that are using these engaging processes to, to make, again, more sustainable, more buy-in, more lasting decisions. We've all heard about New England town meetings, but obviously not just a, a quaint holdover from a bygone era. In fact, the, the, the amazing thing is the more I looked into this, the more I realized that deliberative democracy in its varieties of expressions is happening not only all over this country and, and probably in the UK too, but all over the world. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot probably more happening in the global south in this respect mm. there is in the developed world because in the mm. developed world well i don't know why i'm happy to speculate i think it has a lot to do with our richness our wealth the fact that we're distracted by other kinds of things but down where uh, things aren't so lavish in terms of lifestyle people want to know what's happening to their money they want to have a voice in in the, the governance of their communities I just ran across a report the other day. It's called 30 Years of Democratic Innovation in Latin America. And it, it talks about uh, since the 90s in Latin America, in the 18 countries of Latin America, there have been over 3,700 instances of things like deliberative events, del deliberative councils, citizens' assemblies, participatory budgeting, various forms of digital engagement. This is a thriving culture that's almost entirely below the radar mm. as mainstream media are concerned. I think so much is going on that people don't even know is happening. It's it's really kind of a tragedy. So obviously the one of the things we're trying to do in a small way with this blog series uh, is is to get the word out because it, it's it's a vibrant, thriving uh, enterprise, and it could make a bigger difference than it is now if more people knew about it. It's pretty hard to cover in the media. I, I, I've well, seen yeah. reporters try to sit through in a, an hour and a half, you know, small group, large group, deliberative breakout, and trying to find sound bites. And it takes it takes a lot more work, so it's harder to uh, to to get coverage in the media. <laughs> Yeah. I, Not I, an indictment of deliberative democracy, but an indictment of what the media are like, it seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, I mean that the media, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, news is what's new. You know, sure, you send some cub reporter to a city council meeting and he comes back or she comes back with not much to say unless somebody thought the mic was turned off and said something outrageous. Right. You don't see a lot of headlines like, Team funds consensus. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, listen. As as ever, I feel compelled to defend my industry. Um, I think uh, what is often misunderstood about uh, the media is that journalists are not opinion writers and they're not es essayists. Uh, they are reporters, and there needs to be a larger, I would argue, ecosystem of essayists and opinion writers and um, you know, people that cross over between journalism and academia more, but it is sort of inherently unprofessional to report on something um, unless there it is new or news. Um, and certainly for most reporters, I mean, you're just simply not allowed to allow your politics to enter into into your reporting, which is why you wouldn't find like you know, deliberative democracy team finds consensus in town hall meeting. 
Why know, that needs to be an essay in the New Yorker. Exactly. That's what there are lots of people in that community who would like to read about that. <laughs> well, then they should start their own press as well. Definitely. Well, yeah. Into local media. That's another rabbit hole. Oh, it's surprisingly on topic. I had lunch with a friend um, a few days ago who manages a whole bunch of regional papers in the UK. And he was saying, you know, people do not understand how important local media is to local democracy. Yes. Oh, yes. Such an important. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. He said everybody's just buying their national paper that they ideologically ascribe to. And that's where they're getting their news. And they have no idea what's happening on the ground level. It's a huge reason as to why communities are disintegrating around the United Kingdom. Yes. Absolutely. No, and it's it's in the U.S. as well. No, there's some really important research on that. I totally agree. When we're lacking in local coverage in things that we know about. I mean, I know about my town, my sidewalks, but I don't have that. And the only lens I have is that national and, as you said, sort of ideologically, uh, if, if I'm only seeing through that lens and I bring that to my to my hometown, that's toxic to my own town's social capital. Let's get into that. Actually, yeah, let's talk then about how a national understanding of politics or how a national understanding of or even international, what's what's quote unquote going on in the world, how that can actually distract from the processes that can be used to constructively create new democratic processes locally. That was a big sentence. <laughs> well, I, you know, it, it, I think one of the things that we... Um, uh, that I also am fascinated by with this question of a, a, a small deliberation is what it does to us individually, what it does to our brains. Um, and we actually have now more and more data on what happens when you um, take a complex issue, something like climate change. And, uh, you know, if it's offered with with that us-then framing, which it often is. Um, I, was, I was just looking at a study from the uh, University of Arizona um, or no, it was Arizona State, where they um, did uh, surveys of, of uh, four study groups, four groups of people, um, and asked them what they thought about climate change. And then they um, were involved in a deliberation where mm -hmm. they bounced information, scientific information from both sides. They sat, they chewed on it. They talked about their own experiences. Um, they were, you know, asked some, some pressing questions about how to move forward and then asked to fill out the same survey again. And what we saw, and you see this again and again in deliberative processes, is that people who identified with one side um, at the beginning changed um, through the deliberative process. How to change your mind. Um, mm. And it wasn't an advocacy process. It wasn't a I'm trying to convince you process. It was a what do you think? Here's a bunch of here, here are a bunch of studies. Here's a bunch of information. Talk about it with your neighbors. Uh, and come back again, not about changing lines or convincing people, but about creating new solutions. The outcome of the process is, is people actually do know how to take in new information when we aren't in a, um, in an adversarial situation. And I guess that's an answer to your, to your question of, of, um, what happens when everything's framed at adversarially, like at the national level, we aren't able to think as productively. This is interesting then. Let's, and I probably should have asked this at the beginning then, let's get into the etymology perhaps or the definition then of, of what deliberative. What is, a, what is a deliberation and how is that different to the democratic processes that we're currently seeing? Tom, do you think you could comment on that? This is just my opinion. I won't speak for Susan, but it seems to me our current system is adversarial. Hmm. But he said, if you wanted to design a system to, to ensure gridlock, you would set up 
a system with two parties in which they, you know, struggled with each other. <laughs> one was out, one was in, and then the next one, next time around, the other was out and the first one was in kind of thing. That's, that's a system almost designed for gridlock. It's not designed to bring people together in a collaborative way. Everybody's posturing or performing, as you put it earlier, it's so much performative work going on in this kind of system to, to hang on to power and the perks that go with it, as opposed mm -hmm. to get things done and solve the problems that people are trying to address in their daily lives. So the point is to, how can we tweak the system so that it's more toward the latter than toward the former? And, you know, there's a quote from the biologist, uh, Edward Wilson, Ed Wilson, he said, uh, the real problem with humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. <laughs> I just want to point out that what's standing between the paleolithic emotions and the godlike technology is institutions. Mm. And that's the buffer. That's the mediating structure. And we right now have sy systems, governing systems that don't do that very well. So I think what we're advocating for is a is a sea change in the kinds of governance institutions that help shape what we do and how we respond to the, the world and the problems we encounter. Just to play devil's advocate, uh, to be adversarial. <laughs> um, the thing that's coming to mind is uh, an interview that I did with Sally Gurner, and she said that in studying how systems change, research has shown that change always comes from the level below the, the current executive team, essentially. Um, so as much as there is a push for, for grassroots change and community change and all this stuff, and she says that's, that is really, really important. Of course it's important. If you actually want to effect change quickly, you need to go for the people just below the decision makers right now. Um, and she said, you know, arguably with the climate crisis, that needs to be the, the, the strategy. Because the medieval institutions that are in place do serve those decision makers ultimately and do serve a certain class globally. Yeah. Um, well, I'd argue that how's it working out for us so far? Well, it's working I mean, out pretty well for them. Protest movements have been doing for decades. Now, I mean, you're old enough, I think, to remember, uh, maybe you're not, uh, to remember the, the Rio conference in 1992. You've read about it for sure. That's, that's, that's what put the environmental, the modern environmental movement globally on the map and activist organizations and activists and, uh, certain strains in, in political organizations in various countries have been working those levers ever since. Mm -hmm. And we are where we're, where we're at right now as a result of that work. And it hasn't gotten us to where we need to be. So. I, I just think it's both and, as as Susan said earlier, we have to keep working at that level too. But unless you build a political movement from the grassroots that supports the kinds of actions that the people just below the decision-making level need to push on their betters, their, their leaders, I don't think we're going to make any more progress democratically sure yeah i agree with that because you would need you know you need voters to get these people in uh when they appear on the stage with a certain manifesto but still i would like to continue pushing back because 
yes, okay, the environmental movement's been on the map and there was limits to growth published in the 70s. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk. Um, and certainly there is a lot of activism around the world. And I absolutely applaud the work that is done by these people, especially in countries where they are putting themselves at mortal danger to tell the truth. Exactly. Nonetheless, it's not just that we're not where we need to be. We are very, very, very far from where we need to be. There has not been systemic change. There has been an increase in dialogue in the general public, uh, both locally, nationally and internationally. But we are very, very far from making systemic change. So is there, I mean, how wise is it to keep pushing that community-based dialogue when, I mean, we've been doing that for 50 years and we're going to overshoot 1.5 in the next eight years. That's just, that's just fact. I would say we haven't been always doing community dialogue very well. Um, when I first, uh, started, you know, thinking about the, the, the idea of, you know, slow democracy in the, in the nineties, there was, uh, I was like, oh, I want to go back to school. I want to get a master's in this. And I couldn't, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I did, but what my master's was in was natural resource planning because nobody was teaching about dialogue deliberation. And that has changed dramatically in the last 15 years, 20 years. There are, you know, what dozens of, of, of places that are now studying um, and, and these are scholar practitioners. These are folks like John Gastel at Penn State. In Oregon, he created the Citizens Initiative Review. How can we make the initiative voting system more deliberative? And, and he actually created change so that Oregon now actually does have a deliberative process to, to look at the um, initiatives and referenda that they do. There are a, a bunch of others as well. So I, I think that the, the, the field has changed um, a lot. Uh, and, you know, the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation, and then there's the International Association of Public uh, Participation. Um, and these folks are coming up with standards that help local groups and local governments, um, you know, do democracy in a better way. I, uh, I, I, I do think that we have to, you know, come back to the fact that human beings are just kind of dumb we're just not we're kind of this we're this really flawed species and and you know love ourselves for it and how do we talk with people that we love how do i talk with my kids how do i talk with my neighbors we need to do it in a way that that has some patience even though yes we're in a big rush again i think slow can be faster and allowing a process that that is non-adversarial and that does bring together people who are different, but who can find some commonalities is actually, it's fun. It's actually fun. Mm. People, um, and, and we measure this again and again. How was that deliberative process for you? We do surveys at, at, you know, before and after, and people say, that, I, I liked it. I would do it again, which is not the way I feel about <laughs> a lot of my social change work. A lot of the, the adversarial work that I do, I do it because I know I should, but it's, it's really hard. And so many of us have stepped back because it's so tiring. Whereas mm. this local work is, is invigorating. We are social animals. I think what I find particularly interesting in the, the arguments that you're both making is it harks back to this maxim in, well, actually in physics and in marketing, funnily enough. Uh, in physics, it's the paradox I can't remember the name of. And in marketing or business structure, it's this idea of like, don't go for efficiency, go for effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Because efficiency can only take you so far. Whereas effectiveness will take you all of the way. And sometimes that means it'll be maybe a little bit slower. Sometimes it'll mean a bit faster, but it will always be exactly what you need it to be, whatever that process is. Oh, I like it. 
Yeah, right. And in, in physics, it's uh, it's not going to come to me, but essentially the paradox is that it's the myth of efficiency. No matter how efficient you make a process, you will always end up using more and more energy uh, because an efficient process becomes utilized more and more by the resource users around it. It's the Jevons paradox. Did I explain it correctly? Yeah, pretty much. I, I think he started with it. I named for an Englishman named Jevons. He noted that when uh, they started using steam power equipment to mine coal, that the coal went down and people used more of it. Exactly. Let me just add a gloss to what you've been, both of you have been saying is that Please. had David Orr on a few months back, he said something else too that stuck with me. He said that our environmental and political troubles are linked and they're intimate and reciprocal. Mm. And you can't really fix the climate until you fix how we make decisions as a society. And I think that's what we've been talking, sort of talking around for the last 40 minutes or so, is that the way we make decisions as a society doesn't plug us into those problems. It severs the connection between our awareness of the problems and our ability to make a difference in terms of how we as a collective, as a society, respond to them. So that's what democracy would try to restore that connection. I completely agree with you. I think we live in a very funny age now whereby, you know, despite sort of the, the lavishness and the, the privilege that we have, the vast majority of, let's say, Westerners also work, you know, bullshit jobs to, to use David Graeber's term. I didn't know we were allowed to use that term. I would have used that earlier. <laughs> of course, you, you can say whatever you want in this podcast. <laughs> Um, yeah, so bullshit jobs or anybody listening doesn't know it's essentially um, this idea that you are so completely um, separated from the fruits of your labor. You're earning money to do a very meaningless thing that could either be replaced by a machine or, you know, yeah. Um, and I think that essentially having like, especially the educated, um, oh, I don't want to use the word class, but I can't think of anything else, like the educated class and okay. pushing them into these bullshit jobs where they are so removed from their labor and a, a Marxist perspective. I mean, are we not living in this kind of very strange period of like eternal adolescence where we have almost no, not just autonomy, but no responsibility for the world that we live in because nothing that we do essentially ever impacts change or can impact change. And I think that it fundamentally severs, I really, you've both been using this term and I really like it like severs human nature from the best of itself. Like, I think we are such responsible, collaborative beings. And that's like the essence of our progress. And to disallow, to block, especially, you know, the educated class from being able to take that responsibility, not just for their own lives, but for the shape of the world. I think it's a huge reason as to why we're in the mess that we're in and why we have this crisis of imagination that means that people cannot seem to figure out where to go and, and how to envision it's like um that phrase it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism yeah. <laughs> i totally agree with what you're saying there rachel one of the posts i put up is called um, nine short arguments for deliberative democracy number nine argument is it's governance for grown-ups you know your adolescence uh triggered that in me because i mm. think it, it is a way and I think actually people often crave this. Yeah. They want to take responsibility, but they're not yeah. empowered to do it. And this kind of system, this culture of deliberation, 
and deliberative democracy would actually empower them to be responsible and to take responsibility for how their communities are run and what they look like. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there is this assumption that what we want government to be is a vending machine. We want to put our taxes in one side and get the services out the other side. And if it doesn't work, you kick it. Like mm. that's the vending mm. machine, you know, of mm. democracy. And and I think sometimes we hire public servants who think it is their job to be that vending machine. You know, we, we these middlemen bureaucrats who, you know, they're doing their best. We've asked them to do mm-hmm. this thing. Leaders, I think, sometimes think, oh, that's the machine that people want. They're apathetic. They don't have time for meetings. Whereas, in fact, if they flip that on their head and say they they would love to be asked meaningful questions. They don't want to come to meetings where they're just rubber stamping what we've decided already. Mm. But if we can uh, ask, ask uh, meaningful questions and have a meaningful process, what we find is that people do come. They come again and again, and we oxygenate that democratic process instead of making it into a machine. And I think connect as well, connect across the demographics, because I recognize as well, you know, I just spoke about, you know, the educated class, the educated demographic, but sort of one of the great travesties of the modern era is that it is the people that live in the most precarious situations, whether, whether they are geographically on the front line of climate change or whether they are the working class in overly developed nations where there is more than enough access to wealth and to housing and to food. And yet, despite that, they are still squeezed beyond belief to just fight for their own survival. I mean, these people sort of bear the great burden and responsibility for keeping the wheels turning, whether it's, you know, indigenous people that are forced to sell off their land in Malaysia um, for timber so that they can, you know, feed their families or whether it's you know, bin men on the, you know, in, in our own nations. There is a sense of like the, the burden of responsibility is put on those who have no access um, to power or to um, places where decisions are made. People that would have access are given no responsibility and so are therefore disempowered and perhaps apathetic or whatever. And so kind of what you're saying is, well, what I'm hearing is like there's that bridge sharing the burden of responsibility and then sharing also the capacity for, um, yeah, autonomy, empowerment, decision making, and perhaps finally bridging that gap between the classes, which is so important if you want a democracy to accurately, you know, function and look after the majority. I so agree with you, Rachel. And I think that class, that, that, that class divide is, oftentimes I'll hear people say, poor people don't have time for, you know, quote unquote, slow democracy, or um, what about people who don't like to give speeches? And that's mm-hmm. where you get into the super rich discussion of, of how can we create, make these processes more inclusive? Because the, the reality is we have time to love, we have time to be with our neighbors. We desperately need as human beings that time together. And so um, rather than trying to Add, add on democracy, add, add it onto your job, blah, blah, blah. You're actually incorporating in to your community, incorporating it into your family time. So this means, mm. this means field trips. This means, um, uh, you know, c- community, um, gatherings where they really are social as well as, uh, in decision making. It means, mm. uh, incorporating storytelling. Um, uh, as a really, really important part of the deliberative process is people just getting together in small groups and, and telling their, t- talking about their lived experience. You don't have to be a speech maker and you don't have to be one of the elite educated class classes mm. in order to bring wisdom. And in fact, you're probably very likely to bring more wisdom <laughs> if you're not uh, one of those people who comes in with a, you know, polished up speech. Yeah. Yeah. To add to that is that the, 
the data or the experience with these, these deliberative events all over the planet are that when you invite people in from all backgrounds, they do come. I mean, the, the mm. poster for participatory budgeting, for instance, is Porto Alegre, which is a, a city in Brazil, uh, with, with, as so many of our cities have a large segment of basically favela, uh, slum dwellers, and they are among the most vigorous and dedicated participants in these participatory budgeting exercises. They know what a difference it makes when their voice yeah. is heard and they get, they have a way of or some input into where the money goes and how it's spent, for example, at the local level. And that's also true in New York and Chicago, um, where participatory budgeting has been incorporated, is that you see a great rise in participation by young people, by people of color, by previously marginalized groups, because they can see um, uh, they can see the impact uh, of their of their democratic participation. So, and then that, of course, that grows the civic infrastructure uh, empowerment um, of, of those communities. And the result is, you wind up with social capital. You strengthen the ties in the community. You have links that weren't there before. You have people shifting their extreme positions or softening them sometimes, which makes even more things possible in the future. It builds on itself. It, it's a win-win kind of kind of process. How fantastic. Is there a step-by-step -step plan? I mean, this, I suppose this would be like my penultimate question. Like, is that in one of the books? You know, if somebody is listening to this and goes, right, okay, I really want to help set this up in my community. What are the first steps? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Well, <laughs> you could buy a copy of Sutherland Woden's book, Slow Democracy. <laughs> an excellent guide to doing it. If you want a, a quicker and dirtier uh, entree into it, I would suggest these, this blog post series that I'm curating for resilience.org, and it's called uh, Democracy Rising. And if you search on that in uh, their search field, we're up to about 16 posts now. I think there will be about 25 by the time we're all done. But there are probably seven or eight key posts um, that would give you the nuts and bolts of how to do this. Uh, I'm not saying it's, it amounts to a primer, but it'll give you the, the, the bare bones of how it's done and how to get it going and steer you to a ton of other resources that you can tap if you want to start something in your own community. And, and I would just add that the joy of something like, I mean, what, again, you know, harking back to the slow food movement, um, what slow food looks like in Italy is very different from what slow food mm. looks like you know, uh, in coastal California, you know, what, what flavor does the soil give the food? And that is definitely true about slow democracy. So using some of these ideas, but making them fit in, in your community and in, in your area it, where it, people are going to have, you know, different priorities, different bullshit meters you know, mm -hmm. about what, what's, what's really going to work where they are, um, and, and making it your own. Excellent. I love to hear that. I, I, I love to hear any solution that appreciates it. Any, any one part of it is a part of a larger ecosystem of, you know, different interacting things. Wonderful. So my final question then for you both would be, who would you like to platform? Well, I think I mentioned earlier, um, you should get in touch with Tom Murphy. He's a, he's the astrophysicist and no, this is necessarily connected, uh, very directly to the topic of topics we've been discussing, but he's really, really good on the big picture 
um, of the dilemma that humanity faces right now. Susan and I talked about this. There's a fellow out at the University of Northern Colorado, Martin Carcassonne, who is a, a, a longtime scholar and practitioner of, of deliberative democracy. Um, Susan, I think uh, you wanted to stress his work on wicked problems, but he's good about a lot of this stuff. He knows this stuff really well. He founded the Center for Public Education there, and so he is one of those uh, scholar practitioners, you know, folks who um, who are really know the literature inside and out, but is absolutely out there in the field working with small rural communities. Awesome. Um, and and how, how can you frame these? I mentioned John Gastel earlier. He's a professor of communication at Penn State brilliant theoretist, but also one who um, does a lot of practical work. And he's also really, really playful. He's, he's serious about games. He's serious about making things fun. Um, I would also um, mention Matt Leininger, who is with the National Conference on Citizenship. Another guy, very playful, lots of fun to talk to, uh, and works with communities all the time um, in how to make these practices work uh, on the ground. I have one final thought about that. It's kind of out of left field, but if you, I don't believe you've talked to him yet. There's a, a writer named Kim Stanley Robinson, whose most recent book and probably his last book is a 600 page plausible and somewhat hopeful portrait of the converging crises and possible responses to them that might help us avoid the worst of things. <laughs> it's called The Ministry for the Future. It's a great read, and it's really rich with ideas and scenarios. He he researches the Dickens out of his uh, topics when he's writing a book around a particular idea. And this thing is just really rich in terms of potential options and ways we might, you know, bail ourselves out of the mess we're in. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for your time. This was truly enlightening. Thank you, Rachel. This has been really, really good. Rachel, thanks so much for your work and thanks so much to your listeners as well. I, I, I think that um, we all need the inspiration that you're bringing us and hope that we can do it with a little joyfulness as well. Well, in touch. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about deliberative democracy or read today's interview transcript, there are links over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, Support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page. Supporting the podcast also directly supports my climate corruption investigations. So a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.